Hi everyone and welcome back to The Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and today we're going to discuss passive investing in uncertain times. Joining me today is Senior Investment Reporter Nicola Blackburn and Craig Burgess, CEO at Evidence-Based Investing. Craig, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Uh, first off, could you please explain roughly the evidence-based ex- approach to investing? Well, the, the clue's in the name really, isn't it? Um, so you... you... You look to what academia's uh, worked out over the last well, be 50, 60, 70 years now of, of research. Um, and, and in our space, that basically, <laughs> the most important point that you take from all, from all the evidence is that active firm management doesn't really add an awful lot of value. Um, there are undoubtedly successful firm managers out there, but they're extremely hard to find in advance. And uh, it's very hard to know when to fire them as well. And there's just no evidence you can do that successfully, repeatedly over long periods of time. And in actual fact, just buying the market would have given you, um, by far and away, a better return than the vast majority of active fund management solutions, net of cost. And the other element that's sort of primary in our um, uh, makeup uh, and using uh, evidence base is that uh, there are certain factors that um, the evidence shows have generated higher returns in the market, such as small cap value, momentum. Um, and you can buy those off the shelf. You don't need to pay uh, expensive fees to get hold of those. And if you add those into your portfolio mix, um, you, can, you, have, have, you have a higher expected rate of return in the long term. And this is all probability. There's no guarantees in any of this, but you, you're just following what the best evidence is to give you, give you the highest probability of having a superior return in the long run with, with better risk, risk characteristics because you're not, you're not placing your bets in the, in the hands of a, a fund manager or a fund management group or a select number of securities. You, you, you're really on, your only real risks are market risks, which, which we can explain to clients, not other types of risks, such as losing all of your money. Um, Craig, what do you think the idea... Okay, so if you have your average IFA um, and they have, you know, an average an average IFA's client, so maybe they're approaching retirement and um, they have a have a moderate risk tolerance. What what to you is kind of the ideal portfolio makeup? Do you think focusing purely on purely on passive strategies is is kind of the way to go for investment portfolios, or do you think there's merit in um, in a blend with with active? Well, it, it doesn't matter what period of history and a client's journey that you would uh, ask me that question about. We just don't see any merit at all in active. It wouldn't matter to me whereabouts in a person's uh, journey through life that you, you, you asked me to comment on this. We just don't see any merit for, for active firm manager at, at any point, be it that you're a hundred pound a month saver, your pension, or you have a million pounds you're drawing down in retirement. Um, but it, and, and we're evidence based. So, we would have no problem if there was a pool of evidence that came around and said, you know what, uh, it makes sense to employ active firm managers for for, for, for doing this, um, this part of your portfolio. And, and we would follow that evidence. And if the evidence came that, you know what, factors don't work anymore and active firm management seems to be the bee's knees and we know how to find these guys, you know when to fire them and you can get it done at a reasonable price, then that's what we would be talking to our clients about. But when you go into retirement, you have to understand what our clients look like. when. You know, our financial advisors' clients are Mr. and Mrs. Miggins, uh, done okay, built up a couple hundred thousand pounds, and now want uh, a level of income to subsidize their pension for the remainder of their lives. They don't want to shoot the lights out. They're not looking for a 3% over market returns. 
uh, they're more worried about downside risk than they are about upside risk. Um, so, uh, you know, a 60-40 portfolio. And one of the things we provide all our, our clients with, our advisors with, is a, a whole lot of back-tested data with you know, scenarios of the worst one year, two years, three years, five, et cetera, to walk clients through what investing looks like in, 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 the, in the, uh, uh, the testing times. And uh, you know, clients need to get on board with that. There is no way that you can jump out the market just before it crashes and jump in just before it goes up. Um, it sounds like you should be able to do it, but but, but there's no evidence you can. Um, so yeah, we just don't see any point. There just isn't any evidence to suggest that that's a way of doing it. For us, you know, your portfolio is the market, and your alpha is is you know, the satellite element are the factors that you weight towards. Um, you know, it, 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 that would be as close as we get to that 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 concept. Why do you think, um, given? that sort of lack of concrete evidence then in your point of view, why do you think that so many um, so many advisors um, use both passive and active funds? Well, uh, maybe the, a lot of our clients are only passive. You know, they're, 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 you know we, we, we would talk to an advisor who has a 50 million pound book of client assets and we, we would be talking about getting 50 million pounds of assets off them. Um, it's a bit like being Catholic and Jewish at the same time, or maybe Catholic and Hindu at the same time. It's just, it's very hard to, you know, massive cognitive dissonance here. Um, so we don't really see a great deal of this. What some advisors will do is they'll they will have passive and active solutions. And, you know, there are clients that, you know, we're patent-seeking primates. So you know, an awful lot of clients will just find it very hard to believe that, come on, seriously, you must be able to do something. Why are there all these active fund managers around? There's something I'm missing here. And of course, an advisor will say, well, I've got this great fund manager. I, I believe he can do that for you. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think passive is disappearing any time. Uh, sorry, active is disappearing any time soon. Um, but from our perspective, most advisors we work with tend to have a very, very high profile in passive. And the, the active clients will be ones that just they can't get the message over to um, and when we saw some clients, we've seen clients over the years go to passive. And when something like Ukraine happens, uh, particularly when it's passive with ESG, um, you know, they think, well, maybe I'm missing out because oil's gone up and I don't have many oil companies. Um, so we have, you know, they're the kind of clients that, uh, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be, maybe an active guy could do more. So you know, they all tastes out there, but. I think the the the, the risk benefits, cost benefits of, of passive are winning more and more advisors over. And mm-hmm. we don't see a lot that mix and match. It, 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 certainly not within one client. We don't see, you know, 80% passive and, you know, that's, it's, it's a small corner of the universe for us. Mm-hmm. Picking up on that um, sort of Ukraine example you just used, um, you know, more for the advisor side as well. When employing these passive strategies with such a macroeconomic change as, as we've seen in the last couple of years, whether it be Ukraine, whether it be bond market, whether it be gilt yields, et cetera, et cetera, how would you go about reassuring clients that this strategy is still the way to go when they come to you and say, like in your example, you know, uh, I've not got money or companies all just gone through the roof? Well, even with a, an ESG portfolio, we, we do have money in oil companies. So an ESG portfolio is 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 not an, a massive exclusionary portfolio. You know that that's the territory of SRI and, uh, uh, and portfolios like that. So I think the market for us, our, our market portfolio was something like about eight nine thousand securities, and I think our ESG portfolio is 
six or seven thousand securities. Um, so you, you're still picking up beta. You know, you, you, the market isn't going up by 10 and we're going down by 10. There's, there's a bit of tracking error. Um, but you've only got to go back to pandemic. And, you know, the inverse was happening. You know, uh, tech companies were doing better. Well, they tend to be quite green, all said and done. They're not pumping out a lot of CO2. Um, tend to look after their staff reasonably well, et cetera. Uh, maybe governance is a bit, bit of an issue with some of those companies. Uh, pharmaceutical companies were doing well. Um, so, you know, w- w- there was a sweet spot there between sort of uh, 19 and uh, 2019-20 where ESG was, was, was driving returns in excess of market. That is no reason to start buying it. Past performance um, over a short period tells you nigh on nothing and plenty of evidence to, to support that. Um, and we would, you know, we would be talking to our advisors, saying, "You show them that this is you are not going to, you are not going to get a return via factor-based exposure and ESG exposure that is constantly one percent a year above the market. I mean, if that's how you think it's going to arrive, then you're, 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 you're sadly mistaken. You're going to have tracking error. You're going to have one or two years under, one or two years over, a spike above, spike below. The correlation will still be very, very tight, but you know." Uh, uh, you're going to have these anomalies from time to time. You need to get used to that. That's how it works. If it it were otherwise, there would be no premium. If you knew you could get 1% a year, it was always there, it would get washed out in the price on day one because it would be so solid. Everybody would push the price up to it would wash out that return. Mm. You're getting paid for living with this variability of returns. Mm. Craig, I mean, um, you know, I guess having said all this, this year we've we've been in this quite unique environment where we've seen you know seven stocks prop up i think some would say prop up the u.s equity market um which to an extent could challenge the idea that if you're investing in a whole market you your your exposure is so diversified that you you're kind of um you know you're cutting out some risk to an extent um what do you think about that? And is, you know, is the activity we've seen, particularly in the US equity market, a concern at all? Um, because obviously in market indexes as well, in global equity market indexes, the US is like the majority of that index, right? So what's, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, that's, that's one of the virtues of a, of a market portfolio. Uh, so n- number one holding in our portfolio is Apple. Um, so we've got we, we've always had a core holding of beta. So we have global developed and emerging markets. So we, we start with owning everything. And then you have a momentum uh, allocation, a value allocation, minval allocation. Um, we also have quality, but we don't actually buy quality because there's enough quality embedded in, in the way that uh, these uh, factor-based managers are, are, are building their portfolios. They now incorporate quality. So there's sort of five factors. Um, but even with those additional factors, Apple's still the number one holding. So, you know, uh, in the world of the uh, Magnificent Seven, if you were an active fund manager and you knew that AI was going to blow up in a way that would profit these seven companies, great, well done. And I'll bet there's a fund manager out there that did it. Whether that was luck or skill, well, the jury after the jury's out on that. More than likely, it was it was it was luck rather than skill. Um, but there's no evidence you can find that guy in advance and know when to sell him, da da da, da. But uh, you know, a, a diversified portfolio of 7,000 stocks still, because it's still pretty much market cap weighted. We still hold sectors roughly proportional to global sector weightings. It's a little bit difficult with ESG because you, you are going to be underweight um, energy, mm-hmm. um, but that would tend to weight you a little bit more towards IT often as not. Um, so we, we picked that up, but not as much as you know, other portfolios, a little bit more overweight in IT. 
but you know what comes around goes around. I can bet you the man. You know, I'll take good money off you that you know within the next year or two the Magnificent Seven will revert in some way, shape, form, or other. Uh, AI will seem to be actually not that big a deal. I mean, it's no more than it was than it has been for the last ten years, and the prices will come back down again. The, the fact is, I don't know. Um, but by owning everything, you're not going to end up uh, with a completely skewed portfolio. And, and it's lovely to think maybe I, sh- I could have got those seven, uh, or I, I could have more energy, or I could have, yeah, well, those are all lovely ideas, but you know, humans can't fly. That's a lovely idea as well. But you, you just got to give up on the idea that you can pick them out in advance. And the, the, the less risky approach with a more certain outcome is to own it all and tilt towards the factors that the evidence says have a higher expected rate of return. It's actually boringly simple, all said and done. I, I just want to move on for a moment onto um, Parmenian. Um, you know, you're one of the largest, uh, the fastest growing DFMs, sorry, in the market right now. Uh, and we understand there weren't any immediate changes um, with the with Parmenian's acquisition. Um, what does this deal give you? Um, and you know, we understand that you've reached recently reached two billion assets as well. Um, so I just want to ask about growth plans and what that relationship with Parmenian uh, gives EBI. It's it's nothing like um, what people assumed it would be like because this PE, the back end of all of this, that owns us. Um, um, but they're not traditional PE uh, companies that 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 own. Not think they're companies partnerships, wherever they are. Um, and so we haven't been stomped all over and been given a mandate of how we have to behave. Um, I was just talking to one of my colleagues uh, earlier on, and I, I don't think he's ever seen a. Parmenian guy or one of the private equity guys on the premise, and they have been on once or twice, but um, we had a board meeting the other day and you know, there was nobody from Parmenian there. The, the chairman is a Parmenian, but you interviewed him uh, last week, I think, Mike, Mike Morrow. Um, so what they, what they give us is, we, we, the, the mandate from the very beginning was they're going to allow us to continue on doing what we're doing. We've been growing at 30, 40% per annum, and the, the only reason it's nearer to 30 or 40 is really just market moving. COVID pushed us down a bit. And, but uh, I think we're about 17, 18% in the first six months. So we, we expect to do nearly 40 this year. This year. Um, but when you're a growing company and a small entity as we have been, we were a little family business and we've grown and grown to about 24 staff at the moment. You run up against all kinds of problems that you're just not equipped for. You know, HR. Uh, you know, who could afford a, a, you know, a HR person to take on one or two people here. So you've got to often solve that problem. Uh, compliance, you know, it, it, it notches up as you get bigger. Um, now, we're dealing with Parmenian, who, uh, as a platform, are just at a lot, lot higher level of compliance. I mean, they talk to the regulator on a regular basis in a way that you know, we would never be, be doing. So they bring to us HR, uh, accounts, uh, finance, uh, all of these back office things that are, are impediments growing for us. We've got to take our eye off the ball and find a solution. And we don't really need capital. It was definitely not one of the reasons why we did this. Um, we're quite, you know, quite, quite, quite strong. But if, if I came up with a plan tomorrow that we could justify to take on 20 new BDMs and we'd be able to go, you know, set the world on fire doing that, there's no way I could have funded that historically. If I can make the business case uh, to Parmenian and, and the, the PCP, uh, then you know I, I'm pretty sure I get ten of them, <laughs> uh, or maybe the twenty. Uh, so it gives us access to capital that um, gives us you know gives us another lens to look at growth plans going forward. Um, with a lot of pressure to lower costs, do you still see EBI offering a competitive advantage in this space? 
Okay, I think I know who you're talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, w- w- we were 12 basis points from, from day one. And, you know, my thinking there was, well, one basis point a month. Um, it takes you 100. It's 33 years before we've earned 1%. Uh, you know, now you can go to 9, 10, 11, and, you, you know, maybe it's 35 years. But in reality, 12 basis points over 33 years. I think the, the return of the portfolio would be several hundred or a thousand percent return over that period. We are a negligible cost at you know at five, ten, or fifteen kind of basis points, um, and, and we're just not interested to race the bottom. You know, we've always been profitable. We've never needed outside capital. We've grown organically, um, and you know we are still doing so. Parmenia and the PCP guys are, never give us any money uh, into the business. We, we, we're still self-funded. Um, I think it's important to be a profitable business so that you can invest in R&D. And we never wanted to be the business that, you know, once we get to five billion, we'll be making money. But if we don't make it, uh, we're going to blow up the ball of fire. Um, and, you know, our profits aren't obscene. You know, I think our accounts will show the bottom line is circa 10 percent. Um, that's, you know, that that's a reasonable return on investment. Um, it, it, it seems to me if I chopped our prices, we'd suddenly become unprofitable. Would clients be any better off? I mean, you know, one of the sales points we would make is that every, in our earth portfolios, every single fund that we have, uh, there's a an institutional plus share class, for want of a better way of describing it. And, the, and it was for a long time, the only way you could buy these cheaper share classes was via us. Mm. Um, with Vanguard, for instance, for, I don't know, five, six years, the only way you could buy Vanguard Institute Plus was via our portfolios. And that's kind of our shtick is that we work very hard with fund managers to launch funds and through that process, get a lower share class allocated for our clients. So we wash out a lot of our costs simply on the basis that we give you access to lower share classes, cost share classes that you can't otherwise get. So we think we're earning our very small premium over our next competitor. But if you take them out of the equation, we're pretty much cheaper than everybody else in the marketplace. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. I think that's a great note to end on. You've been listening to The Advice Show with myself, EBI CEO Craig Burgess, and Senior Investments Reporter Nicola Blackburn. For any questions, please feel free to tweet us at New Model Advisor or email us at nma team at citywide.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.